Well, hello everybody and welcome to the 2020 Christmas special of Yes OBS. We're back, Paul. I know. We made it after about, is it eight, nine months now? Something like that. It feels longer. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. It's, I, I feel really rusty. Like, I don't know how well this episode's going to go, to be honest. <laughs> Should we just give up? Yeah, right. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> we'll catch you in the new year with season five. <laughs> Actually, for those who don't know, who might be listening for the first time, my name is Anthony Edmondson, sometimes known as voiceover Tony. And I do this podcast with my very good friend. Paul Anthony Jones. I nearly missed my cue again. Ah, you're getting better, Ed. I'm slightly better. Who is also known as Mr. Haggard Hawks. Mm. The infamous... <laughs> infamous? <laughs> infamous Twitter account about linguist, <laughs> linguistics and things. Yeah. Uh, so a bit of background on the podcast. We basically, we tell each other three facts. They could be true. They could be lies. Um, we have to guess who's telling the truth or not. And we get points. Mm. And there's some sort of victory along the way. You'll pick it up as we go along, basically. We've still not worked out how to explain the rules we in any I, succinct way. <laughs> I think it gets worse every time. Yeah. So it's, it's easier just to follow along and work out yeah, what's going exactly. on. Yeah, exactly. Just enjoy yeah. the ride kids yeah but this is the christmas special it is we've made it to the end of 2020 paul just to be honest nothing interesting's really happened this year yeah i don't know why it's taken us so long to do this it's it's like nothing's really happened no i mean i, I bought a new fridge <laughs> that's about it my oven broke and I got that fixed. That happened this year. So with no other topical news to no, talk about. Nothing to talk about at all. We're going to launch straight in to the Christmas facts. Okay. <clears throat> now, you might remember last year I talked about Frau Perkton. Yes. I'm talking about Christmas monsters and kind of Christmas Christmas <laughs> crazies and things. Mm-hmm. Frau Perkter, she was like a, a monster in Germany mm-hmm. uh, who at Christmas, like if the kids had been nice, they'd get a silver penny. If they'd been bad they would have their stomach slit open and have straw stuffed in there. I remember this. Yes. It's you a, really hit a, a festive high <laughs> on last year's Christmas birthday. We're doing it again this year because okay. we're staying with the theme of Christmas monsters. <laughs> right. I've just got a flashbulb memory now of last year's Christmas special when you went up with Christmas spooks. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a theme this year? There's not. I couldn't quite get a full theme. Okay. I, I right. could only find one Christmas spook okay, to talk about. Right. And that's this one. Regular listeners will know that I love my kind of spooky tales yeah. and like myths and legends and that sort of stuff. Yes. We're going to Iceland for All this. Right, okay. Now, as you know, kind of Nordic, Scandinavian type countries, they're quite well known for their trolls. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about Grilla. Um, she's a kind of a giantess troll who was first mentioned in a 13th century compilation of Norse mythology. Now, I think you can relate to Grilla, Paul, because <laughs> she was described as enormous and her appearance is repulsive. So, <laughs> I think... <laughs> How many minutes are we in? And we... <laughs> oh, that's not the only one. I've not finished. Uh, right. she, she was also known as a parasitic beggar <laughs> <laughs> who walks around asking parents to give her their disobedient children. Wow. So, so well, that that's not quite you. That's not quite me, yeah. Parasitic beggar, I, I think <laughs> that's, quite, that's, that's you. Uh, so basically, if you'd been bad at Christmas, mm-hmm. Grilla would come around, grab mm-hmm. the kids, and then she would eat them if they'd been disobedient. Eat them, right. She's not She's not messing around. She's, she's not, not there to teach them a lesson. But I like that. <laughs> no, there's no time for lessons. <laughs> They've had all year to learn how to be good kids, Paul. Right, so get in her oven and you're away. <laughs> so that's it. You're done. <laughs> okay. Um, you'd be surprised to know Grilla's actually been married three times. Wow. Um, and this is where we're kind of going to go with this fact. Oh, okay. Kind She's of... not that repulsive then. <laughs> well, I don't know. There's hope for you yet, Paul. As well. 
<laughs> this fact's literally built around. See, you always do this, though. You, you All your facts are just geared towards making jokes at my expense. <laughs> well, that's, isn't this what this podcast's about? Yeah, probably. Yeah, so basically, Grilla's kind of the matriarch of the family. She's had three husbands, and she's had dozens of kids with these, with these wow. men. Wow, she's really not messing around. She's not. Okay. So this is all true so far. Mm-hmm. Like, Grilla is part of Icelandic folklore. Okay, I thought you were making her up. No, no, it's just perfectly true. Like, okay. She's, she's going to come for you this year, Paul. <laughs> You've been disobedient. But I'm going to talk about her 13 kids. Right. They're sometimes known as the Yule Lads. Oh, right, okay. Because it's not just their mother who causes mischief around Christmas. God. Her sons also come round causing all sorts of bother. Oh, God, right, okay. Is this your yes or BS? Yes, this is my yes or BS. <laughs> okay. So her 13 kids, they, mm-hmm. this is true, she has the 13 kids. Right. They come on different days in December, and oh, they right, each okay. stay for 13 days. So they come one after the other, and then the last one leaves in, like, middle of January. So, so they're, they're sort of concurrently? Yeah. Oh, right. So it's so, not like one of them's there for a fortnight and then the next no, one turns no. up. Because that would go on until like June. No, I was going to say, that would be literally like 13 weeks. Yeah. <laughs> That's not really a festive thing. No, right. So, okay. So you'll end up at one point having all of them in your house. Yes. They'll all be running around Iceland at some point. Oh, right. Okay. So Grilla's obviously the worst monster because she's going to eat the kids. She uh, She's the worst monster because she just lets her kids run rampant. Well, there's a school of psychological thought that says children need a bit of freedom so they can learn their own mistakes. And well, there's freedom and then there's palming them off on other families and households just while you eat people. <laughs> well, she's not. She doesn't give them to other households. The kids, they run around causing mischief themselves. Oh, right. Okay. I'm going to go through three of the kids. Right. I'm going to give you their names. Okay. I'm going to tell you what they're supposed to do. <laughs> right. And there's a point... For each one oh, of right. the Yule Lads. Okay. So oh, it's have... going to be a high scoring episode. It is. Right. Every Christmas it is. Okay. So basically, have I invented these Yule Lads or are they the real Yule Lads? Oh, God, right. I hope you, I don't know if you might be interested in the linguistic side of this because I'm going to try and read some Icelandic for you. This will go well. <laughs> that notoriously easy language to learn of oh, Icelandic. My goodness, me doing the research for this. It right. took a while. So, the first son mm-hmm. is called, now bear with me. Steck jar store. Okay. Basically, in English, it translates it translates to sheep enclosure clod. <laughs> Obviously, not a direct translation, really. Right. But he his job he harasses sheep and kind of tries to scare them off so people can't have sheep over the Christmas. Right. Can't have any mutton on Christmas Day. But basically, he's impaired because he has very stiff wooden legs. <laughs> And he, he has trouble chasing the sheep. So right. he, he's the least feared of the Yule lads, really. It, he, doesn't, he doesn't cause a lot of bother. Okay. So is he real or did <laughs> I make up Steck Jar Store? Right. Sheep Enclosure Clod. Okay. Uh, well, if he finds it hard to run around, you'd think he'd pick a different hobby than chasing sheep. Well, you know, you've got to follow your passions, whatever your limitations, Paul. There's a lesson here from this, this kid. It's very philosophical already. <laughs> uh, does a wooden-legged... Sheep chasing son troll, troll son exists. Yes. It sounds very plausible, but again, you could absolutely have made this up. That's the real question today. It's like I could have gone to an Icelandic dictionary and mm-hmm. just cobbled together some words in Icelandic for this. Or they could be real. So, but it's true that she has 13 children. It's true that she has 13 children. Right. So is this one of her kids? I think it, it, it doesn't sound too outlandish to be mm. made up, but it also... You could be playing this very safe. Um, I'm just going to say that I think that's true. That is true. Ah, right. Okay. Steck Jostor is one of the sons okay. of Grilla. Right. 
So her second son, again, you can possibly relate to <laughs> to this this you lad. The incredibly talented. <laughs> the incredibly talented Gluga Gegir. Oh, right, okay. And that translates as window peeper. <laughs> right. So again, you've you've got a lot of affinity with Icelandic folklore. <laughs> window peeper. Window peeper. Mm-hmm. So he's a snoop. He likes to look through windows for things to steal. So when the families go to bed, he comes along, just swipes all the valuables in the house. That, that's less sort of mischief and more petty crime. <laughs> <laughs> There's a difference between sort of chasing sheep around, laughing, and breaking into people's houses and stealing things. Well, he... he Probably does it with like a jaunty attitude. It doesn't matter how jaunty you are, he's still breaking the law. (laughs) Well, all right, Your Honour. God, (laughs) poor Gluga Gigi. He's just just trying to make a living. (laughs) Gluga Gigi. (laughs) Apologies to any Icelandic listeners, which Um, I'm guessing there's nobody. Oh, Gluga, yeah, that'll mean window. Ooh. That's interesting. Because there's an Icelandic word, Gluga Weather, I think, or something like that, which is window weather. Ooh. Which is weather that looks nice from inside, but you wouldn't want to be outdoors in it. So, have I so stolen this from? Sense. Have I stolen this from Haggard Hawks and then just stuck another word on the end of it? Or is Gluga Gigia? So he looks through people's windows and steals things. Yes. Um, based only on, I think that the name makes sense. I'm going to say that that's true as well because I think if you made him up, it would be like he only eats jelly. And his eyes are made of nostrils or something. <laughs> Jesus, that's nightmarish. <laughs> It'd be something like that if you'd made him up. So, yeah, I think this is true as well. Final answer? Yes. That is true. Gluga Gigia is called window peeper. Okay, right. And the third one, a third and final Yule lad. I don't know if you can relate to this guy so much. Oh, here we go. But he's called Ondkitlia, which means duck tickler. <laughs> Basically, the traditional roast meat on Christmas Day in Iceland is roast duck. Oh. So, Ondkitlia comes along, tickles the ducks, they all fly away, and nobody can eat roast duck on Christmas Day anymore. <laughs> okay. And, and that's, that's all that he does? That's all that he... They're very specific, these Yule lads. There's, yes. If they did more than one thing, we'd be here forever. So he just tickles ducks. Tickles ducks so nobody can have their roast duck on Christmas Day. She needs to buy these kids some books or like a PlayStation or something. Uh, well, the new Xbox is out. So I mean, yeah. Put, pull your finger out, Greela, or whatever your name was. <laughs> and buy, buy your kids some presents. And their deadbeat dad, who yeah. I've forgotten who his name is. Right. Duck Tickler. Now, again, his name makes sense because Enter is duck in German. So there'll be sort of the Germanic. How do you know so many connection words? There. So, yeah, the ond part would that would make sense that that's duck. Okay. Based only on that, I don't know anything about Icelandic Christmas meats. <laughs> um, I don't know how easy it is to tickle a duck. Can you tickle birds? Well, you can You can harass them till they fly away. <laughs> I mean, that's the most... Is the voice of experience? <laughs> Those damn pigeons always on my roof. Um, okay, based only on the linguistic thing, of the, that probably is the Icelandic word for duck. I'm going to say that's true as well. I made him up. Ondkitlia oh. doesn't exist. I think it's literally duck tickle in Icelandic. Right. I just kind of clobbered them together. Oh, you played me at my own linguistic game. Ah, that's technically, I'm claiming that as a linguistic fact victory. Uh, nah, not really. <laughs> Damn it. Ondkitlia. End duck tickler. Yeah. Oh, you get me. End tickler is something very different. <laughs> Ondkitlia. 
Und Kiptlia, right. Uh, he doesn't exist. <clears throat> he doesn't exist. That's understandable, I suppose. Duck tickling is a little unusual. Mm. Is it true that they eat ducks for Christmas in Iceland? No, I just made that up oh. as well. That whole, that whole third part. But those first two Yule lads are true. So right, okay. well done, Paul. You're, you're winning 2-1 at the minute. Yeah. Just to kind of cap off that fact, um, Grilla also has uh, two daughters as well. They're also pranksters. Mm-hmm. Uh, they steal melted fat from people's homes and they stuff it up their nose or put it in their socks. Well, everyone needs a hobby. <laughs> and apparently she has like dozens of other kids with her other husbands, but it's these 13 who get to go out at Christmas and cause bother. You know, rein it in a bit, love, Grilla. <laughs> but at least that's your plans for Christmas Day sorted now. <laughs> Window peeping duck tickler. Okay, well, it's nice that you started off with some Christmas folklore, because mm. uh, I'm going to start off with some Christmas folklore Ooh, as well. Okay. Because um, so, I thought, you know, folklore is an interesting old subject, so I thought I'd have a, like, a little look about if there things to do with Christmas traditions and stuff. There's quite a famous tradition called a qualtag. Do you know what that is? Have oh, you heard of that this rings a vague bit. I should sure it's been on Haggard Hawks before. <laughs> it has, yeah. yeah. Qualtag's the first person that you meet on Christmas morning or New Year's Day, mm. and their identity is supposed to have something to do with what happens in the rest of the year. Oh, so I'd best not meet you then. Not <laughs> <laughs> I think it's more like if it's a doctor, it means that there's going to be some kind of medical thing happening. Oh, jeez. Oh, um, if it's a friend, then it means that you're going to have a good time. I think it's that kind of thing. So you're saying aim to meet supermodels on Christmas Day, <laughs> basically. Yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> there's a tradition that you need to keep a fire burning from Christmas to New Year's Day. And if it went out, you would lose all the good luck that you'd built up going into the next year. But also, if it did go out, um, there was a tradition that no one would help you start it again. Really? Because that would give their luck to you. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that was a tradition. If you get new clothes for Christmas, you have to wear a completely new outfit on New Year's Day and put a different value coin in every pocket. Jeez. That's a tradition. Apparently that brings you prosperity. Is that British tradition, that one? Yeah, these are all British, yeah. That's funny because I was looking at the Icelandic one and mm. the one I didn't use was the Yule cat. <laughs> and in Iceland, he would eat children who didn't wear new clothes on Christmas Day. There's a lot of this sort of thing about not wearing new clothes and stuff. It must be like an old Nordic or Celtic It must be. Tradition. And that's obviously where we've picked it up from. I would have thought so, yeah. Because there's a Scots word, a Yule shard, which is someone who doesn't get a new outfit to wear for Christmas. Mm. And so they become like a bit of a, the butt of the joke mm. on Christmas Day. So there must be something like that. I remember one Christmas I got a completely new outfit and I, I wore like everything new, like underwear and socks and everything <laughs> and felt like a million dollars. Didn't bring me any luck, obviously, but never mind. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a tradition. There's uh, a tradition that on New Year's Day, the last drink poured from the last bottle, the person who drinks that, like finishes off basically the last drink in the house, uh, that's supposed to bring them good luck. And if they're unmarried, it means that they're going to meet the person that they're going to marry that year. Mm. That's a tradition. And if the person that you meet on New Year's Day, their name is supposed to be the name of the person that you'll end up getting married to. So, so there's lots of these sort of odd traditions and things. And a lot of them are to do with kind of meeting your intended and with that in mind, there's actually mm. quite a sort of long process of sort of engineering meeting your intended okay. at Christmas. Um, and this is... This isn't just your plan for Christmas, is it? <laughs> well, if, if it was, I should have started it back on Midsummer's Day Jeez. By, by making a Midsummer dumb cake. And this, <laughs> this 
is yes or be yes. Okay, from this okay. point on. So all those other facts, they're all completely true. The question is whether this three-part process that I'm about to go through is genuinely how you sort of conjure up a spouse for yourself. I'm sceptical already. Just in time for Christmas. <laughs> so, as I say, if you, it's a bit late to do this now, this close to Christmas. You should have started this back in June on Midsummer by getting two of your friends to make, uh, as I say, a dumb cake. So two people make a cake in complete silence the whole, <laughs> the whole way through. They then have to bake it together, like both put it in the oven together. Once okay. it's baked, they still can't say anything. They take it out of the oven. They have to cut it up and put um, a slice of it under your pillow. Okay. In Still in complete silence. And then the idea is, is that once the cake's underneath there, you fall asleep on top of it and you dream about the person that you're intended to marry. Okay. Okay. So once you've figured out who that is, you can take the cake out and presumably eat it. But now you've got the idea of who this person is in your mind. You need to move on to this part has, two this, of the process. This has to be BS. <laughs> now, part two of the process, once you've dreamt about the person that you want to marry, you go out to your garden mm -hmm. um, at midnight Mm -hmm. And you plant some hemp seeds mm -hmm. by also reciting a rhyme. <clears throat> What's this rhyme? I'm lying. <laughs> I, I can't think of a way to finish that rhyme. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's so few words rhyme with lying, of course. And so you're out there in the garden in the middle of the night. It's perfectly normal behavior to mm -hmm. start planting hemp in the middle of the night. And you recite the lines, hemp seed I sow. <laughs> hemp seed I hoe. <laughs> <laughs> this is BS. I've called it now. And she or he that is my true love come after me and mow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and apparently that will conjure them up in your garden at midnight. So what have you done with the cake at this point? Oh, you can eat the cake. That, oh, all okay. the cake was there to do <clears throat> is to make you dream of this person. So now you're out in the garden conjuring them up. So where have the other slices of cake gone? You can eat the cake. The whole cake? Um, I, I guess so. What if you don't dream about your intended for like six weeks? You just keep the cake there, I guess, until it happens. Okay. Or maybe you just go with whoever the first person you dreamt about was, <laughs> whether you want to marry them or not. Okay. You now have the power to conjure them up. Now, that's you can do that, but see, you know, weather might not be conducive to going out and planting hemp. Mm -hmm. The alternative method is that uh, you wet a clean shift dress. So like an underdress. This is mm -hmm. I, this is more for women, I'd imagine. I don't know if you were a shift, do you? <laughs> um, so you would wet one, turn it inside out, place it over the back of a chair in front of the fire. You have to stay completely silent through this process as well. And as completely <laughs> silent so nobody questions how stupid this is. It's and like... as it dries, apparently the person that you're meant to marry that you've dreamt about will turn up and help you turn it back the right way around. What are the chances of that happening? Who's going to just come into your house? Well, the idea is I think it sort of provokes them. Like it, it makes them turn up. Oh. It's sort of pseudo-witchcraft. Oh, okay. okay. So you can either chant your incantation while you're planting hemp in the middle of the night, or you can clean your shifts and they'll come and help you do your laundry. Okay. So that's part two of this process. Oh, Jesus, pick, we're not finished. Pick one yet. of those. Well, it's got, it's got to relate to Christmas. This is all happening in the height of summer, <laughs> oh, God, I remember. Oh, of course. Yes. Um, so finally, what you need to do to prepare all of this is walk backwards out of your house into the garden and keep going backwards until you find a rose. You then have to pluck it <laughs> and without looking at it or talking, put it in some paper. Like dry, like, <laughs> like hide it in some paper and then take it back into the house. Keep it hidden. Don't look at it until Christmas Day. And then you get your rose out 
<laughs> of its little paper parcel. Okay. And on Christmas morning, you tuck it into your bosom. And wonder why you've wasted your life <laughs> for the last six months. And as soon as it's in your bosom, uh, your intended sh- will show up and pluck it out of your bosom. And that's the sign that you're going to get married. This is nonsense. <laughs> From start to finish. This is insane. So you're backing out your house into the garden. What if you don't have any roses in your garden? You'll be walking backwards for miles. But maybe that's... What are the chances of like a straight line from anybody's house hitting a rose? Well, I think you can maybe turn around so long as you're still walking backwards. Yeah, you see, these rules are inconsistent. Why the silence? Why? What happens to the two friends at the start of the process who were making the cake? Where have they gone? They're just helping out. Once you've dreamt about who you need to marry, that's, uh, that's well, their part of the process why... over. Dumb Why it. are they there in the first place? Like Because what? you can't make the dumb cake yourself. <laughs> I don't know why this is making me so incensed. It's like, this is so ridiculous. <laughs> so, the, yeah, just to quickly recap, your two friends have to make a cake in silence. A slice of that goes under your pillow. Mm-hmm. That'll make you dream about who you're going to marry. As soon as you know who that is, you either have to conjure them up by planting hemp and reciting that poem or cleaning your shifts. Uh, and they, that'll conjure them up. And then once they've been conjured up, you go and get a rose, tuck that into your bosom on Christmas morning, and they'll come and pluck it out. And you, and there you go. You've bought yourself a love life. I t- <laughs> right, I'll tell you how to sort this out. Okay. What you do, you skip all the steps until the last one, then just put, put a rose down your top, and then just pretend you've done the rest. And like, go around to like, oh, hi there, Mary. <laughs> Yeah, okay. here's a rose. I did, I did all these steps for you and all that, and then you cut out the middleman. But if she doesn't pull it out of your bosom, then it's not going to happen. It's all been for naught. Well, and maybe she can magically tell that you haven't done all the processes. This is ridiculous, right? I'm going to I'm going to dig into this. <laughs> what, where's this tradition come from? Um, it's an old English folklore tradition. Okay, what year? The book that I got this from was published in the 19th century. Mm. Um, it's just part of a sort of big collection of these sorts of things. Okay, and what, um, what era were they referring to? I don't know, actually, <clears throat> but the that process I got from a letter that was reproduced in this book. Mm. Um, and the, a, a woman had gone through this and had dreamt about someone called Mr. Blossom. <laughs> <laughs> and um, apparently had uh, she'd ruined it because while she was drying a shift, uh, she got spooked by the idea that he might turn up and she she said something, which, of course, broke... Oh, because Mr. Blossom was, of course, on his way over <laughs> at that point. And then, yeah. oh, he, oh yeah. I, can't, I can't go now because she said something. Yeah, and so she ruined, ruined the process. Presumably, she'd have to start again and, and get the cake on the go. Now, again. you see, if this is like referring to medieval folklore... It, I think like a lot of folklore, it's difficult, difficult to kind of pin down when mm. it actually first emerged, but there was a sort of resurgence of interest in it. In the but it still, it still feels like a period where a lot of marriages probably would have been arranged and mm. it wouldn't be any time for this sort of folklore shift wetting hemp planting chanting maniacs okay so it's, <laughs> that's who you're after on your dating profile <laughs> that's literally all i've written <laughs> seeking hemp planting maniacs <laughs> ah my gut just says from start to finish i think it's something you've cobbled together <laughs> Okay. You don't think <laughs> this lady was using an incantation to produce Mr. Blossom? Thing is, whenever you come up with a daft little poem like that, like, I'm planting hemp, let's all get into the tent or whatever it was. I don't that, know. that was it. That was it. Word for word. Every time you come up with one of those, it's like, it's either really stupid and real, like Mozart's Starling's funeral. Oh, yes. I'd forgotten about or that. Or it's made up like that cat in a hat thing. Oh, I'm going to go BS. Okay. I don't believe anyone would be this stupid <laughs> and waste this much time. 
<laughs> but you look so indignant. I'd, I'd say nothing. That's it. Final answer. This is BS. Okay. Go on, BS. <clears throat> that entire story mm-hmm. is true. Oh, who does that? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Who wrote that down, thinking it was a good idea to write that down? Well, it's maybe whoever was going to marry Miss Blossom. Uh, Mr. Blossom. <laughs> I still think this is just your plan, Eugene and Acton. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's all true. All Lockdown has sent you mad this year. <laughs> this is what you've done in the last six months. Well, I, I didn't want uh, Midsummer to go by without making a dumb cake. <laughs> What's so, in a dumb cake? I don't know. I, I, it just called it a dumb cake. I don't know if there's a sort of specific recipe or whether they just mm. have to make a cake. I tell you, forget about the cake. That was a dumb fact. <sighs> you know that barely works. <laughs> <laughs> On to the next one! (laughs) That doesn't even rhyme with cake. (laughs) So, well done, Paul. I think it's 3-1 now with those bonus points I've given away. Already? We never know what the score is on this. You only say that when when you're losing. (laughs) (laughs) I know exactly when I'm winning, how many points I've got. Well, now that we've learned about your Christmas dating life, (laughs) we're going to move on to my second fact. Mm -hmm. It's centred around traditions around Christmas dinner. Oh, okay. Start off with a couple of well-known ones. Um... And this one you can relate to. There we go. <laughs> it's, no, it's only taken you a few episodes to get a, to get a catchphrase. <laughs> All of season five is going to be this. Every fact's built around something I can get a joke out of. You might relate to this dot, dot, dot. But do you know how many calories the average British person consumes on Christmas Day? Oh, I'm guessing it's pretty high four figures. Mm-hmm. Uh, 8,000. Ooh. Almost. It's between five and 6,000. Oh. But in the States, it's closer to 8,000. Oh, really? Yep. Why? Um, larger portions. I think for anyone who's ever been to America, they, have all, they always comment on how big the portions are in restaurants. True. And how... That's, see, that's, I've never been, but... I know, I'm, I'm thinking... <laughs> you, you, anyone who's ever been to the States, they're like, I don't think you've been to the <laughs> I speak, I'm trying to speak with great authority on that. <laughs> it's like, but you can relate because that's your average daily intake. <laughs> You know, probably, you're probably about right. (laughs) (laughs) Especially lockdown, Paul. True. But it's also about 190 grams of fat we take in on Christmas Day as well. Oh, wow. But it's kind of, it's a long tradition of gluttony. It goes back even to like pagan festivals. Mm. Exactly, because it's like mid-winter, it's a bit miserable outside. Let's enjoy something at least and have Mm. a big feast and a big meal. Now, I've got a couple of questions on the next one, on roast uh, on roast turkey. Apparently, it was popularised by Henry VIII in the 16th oh. century. But on the linguistic side, is this true? It was originally North African guinea fowl yeah. that came via the country turkey. Yeah. And then when settlers went to America, they said, oh, that looks like a guinea fowl. Let's just call it a turkey. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. The guinea fowl work kind of came through Istanbul. Mm. So the turkey kind of became like a, just a placeholder name for any kind of big, funny looking edible bird <laughs> so like ostriches were turkeys at one point and sort of swans and things it was just a sort of general name mm. but all the different countries everyone's kind of got it wrong so like in portuguese turkeys are mm. called peru i think yes uh, that's one of the fa- i was going to bring that up to see if you knew much about that one mm. and in turkey they call it hindi which is the uh, turkish word yeah. for india same in france it's called de ind so from, oh, yeah, from, from india yeah in malaysia they're called dutch chickens <clears throat> because <laughs> they were brought over from by, by the Dutch, the Dutch. I'm yeah. guessing. but 
apparently, like I said, apparently Henry VIII, he popularised turkey because he preferred it. Because it used to be the Christmas goose, obviously, was yeah. um, the more traditional thing. But um, geese were quite expensive, so peasants would eat capons for Christmas. Really? Yeah, which I didn't even know what a capon was, so I researched this. It's That's not, just it, like a little chicken, isn't it? No, it's a castrated cock. Oh, like, <laughs> like the bird, obviously. It's a castrated... Can we call them cockerels? Cockerels. It's yeah, cast... we'll use the full word. It's a castrated cockerel. Right. Basically. And, oh, right. And because they were much cheaper than getting a goose, a lot of medieval families would keep chickens anyway. Right, yeah. So for when Christmas was coming around, they'd just keep one aside. Ah, uh, right. Eat him for Christmas. Okay. So that's my introduction on kind of a little bit of history of Christmas dinner. Right. But we're going to Australia now. Oh, right, for okay. a very... For a very special Christmas dinner. Right. We're bouncing around the <coughs> countries here. <laughs> we are. Have you ever heard of Persephone the Platypus, saviour of the Port Fairy Whalers? <laughs> <sighs> from, no, I haven't. From this point on, this is my yes or BS fact. Is this true or is this false? So. Uh, you know what? I've missed this. <laughs> Persephone the platypus, saviour of the what? Of the Port Fairy Whalers. Okay, right. Now, on the south coast of Australia, in the Victoria province, there's a town called Port Fairy. Mm -hmm. It was originally founded in kind of the 1820s as a whaling station, but on one fateful <laughs> December night mm -hmm. in 1840, the whaling ship Dignity was on its way back to Port Fairy mm -hmm. when a summer storm struck. Because, of course, it's summer in the Southern Hemisphere. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. In December. And they were shipwrecked about 35 miles down the coast from Port Ferry. Right. So they were stuck in rough terrain. They'd lost all of the food in the shipwreck. Right. Uh, they were starving. They'd travelled for about seven days to try and make it back to Port Ferry. And right. for their ultimate salvation. Okay. But it just so happened on Christmas Day. <laughs> You've got your storytelling voice on, so this is going to be good. <laughs> Christmas Day in 1840. The first mate, Albert Canning, was out foraging for food when he saw in the waterways of South Victoria a platypus mm -hmm. swam gently up to him mm -hmm. and he was able to, to touch its little head. <laughs> it had no fear of, of man. So he picked up that little platypus, named it Persephone after the Greek goddess because Persephone was associated with nature and bounty. Of course. He took little Persephone back to the camp. Mm-hmm. The surviving sailors overjoyed at this Christmas bounty. <laughs> they killed and ate Persephone. Oh, <laughs> threw that in there. I thought it was gonna like it was gonna swim off and like lead them to like a fruit tree. Or no, something. no, no. They were starving, so they just ate Persephone. But they were so thankful that they'd managed to combat hunger and survive. It gave them the energy to then make it back to Port Fairy the next day. And when they told this story of how it, it was as if God sent Persephone to them. Because usually they're quite shy creatures, platypuses, mm -hmm. but she swam right up to the first mate. And so when they told this tale in Port Ferry the next day, there was much rejoicing. And it became a tradition <laughs> for the sailors to have roast platypus every Christmas. Of course it did. <laughs> in Port Ferry. But they had to put a stop to that in the 1960s when the platypus became a protected species. But today the animal is still known as kind of the, the mascot for the town of Port Ferry. <laughs> Okay. Is that story of Christmas Christmas joy and Christmas roasts <laughs> and an unusual Christmas dinner. Is that true or false? Okay. This is BS. 
<laughs> Why? What makes you think that? Right. First of all, aren't platypus uh, poisonous? Only the thumbs. So they've got like venomous. <laughs> <Thumbs. laughs> They're opposable thumbs. Those little spikes that they have on their flippers. Right. Like, those are poisonous. Cut those off. And the females don't have them. It's only the males have those. So <laughs> says someone who needed to work out whether platypus meat is edible and so looked up <laughs> whether they're poisonous or not. Second of all, um, a wild animal is not particularly keen to swim towards a person. Well, they had very little contact with hu- with with human beings. These this particular platypus, I'm assuming, which is why it swam up to them. So it was inquisitive. <clears throat> it, it was trying to work out what what this enormous potential predator was. Well, that's the, it's a miracle. That's the whole point, Paul. See, now this is the other thing: is that a lovely Christmas story doesn't tend to end with the sort of miracle creature being killed and roasted. <laughs> <laughs> Tends to be lovely. Sort of... Lovely Victorian stories do. It tends to be sort of like, like I say, like it would swim off and, and sort of there would be like a magical tree of meats. <laughs> or, or like, <laughs> there'd be something, some great bounty. How is that make, how does That's that make like more saying, sense? You know, like a, a magical sheep runs up to them and says, follow me and I'll lead you to a, a garden of endless bounty. And they just kill the sheep. <laughs> It's completely different. Like that, that, that couldn't happen. See, you've got this magical platypus story, and they kill the magical platypus in it, the, and eat it. The magical part is that it swam up to them, and, and that they were able to eat it. How many survivors was there on this crew of a whaling ship? Eight. Eight. So it was plenty to feed them. Plenty. Platypus are enormous animals. <laughs> they must be what nine inches long. They're more like thirty inches long. Thirty inches long. So- <laughs> a platypus is not two and a half feet long. Absolutely, absolutely not. <laughs> a two and a half foot long platypus. Well, when you count the tail. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, uh, yeah, sorry. Yes, of course. They probably that, that ate 18-inch tail that it had. They probably ate the tail as well. Yes. Did they eat the beak? I don't know. I wasn't there. But they took the poisonous barbs off it. Because they didn't want to die. Right. <laughs> this can't be true. <laughs> it can't be true. What if it's one of those ones like... See, the the flip side is, is that in the last season, I had a story about a dolphin that f- ferried people around the Captain New Zealand. Captain Jack or whatever it was called. Something like that, yeah. <clears throat> and I think you might be trying to kind of trump me at that. Mm. And, have, and have cajoled this ludicrous, gigantic platypus... <laughs> Magical platypus that just got killed and ate. Uh, and, like, no matter what you say, a platypus isn't 30 inches long. Well, 24 inches. There's not going to be a lot of meat on it, and certainly not enough split between eight men but to probably, give them the energy to they, then walk 30 miles. It probably foraged other, like, vegetables and things as well. So, <laughs> so there was no need to kill the platypus. So they had all the trimmings. And to why go, go like, Oh, I'm going to name you Persephone after the goddess of bounty, uh, and now I'm going to kill you. Well, that's the whole point, because... they're killing a pet. No, they just made... You've made this story up. That's, that's on you to decide, Paul. I, I, no, there's too many, like... <laughs> just, it can't be true. It can't be true. I think you've made this up. Uh, this really? Is BS. You generally think this is... <laughs> the only thing I think that's true is that Port Fairy is a real place, and I, I just, I think <laughs> you've made everything up. Is that your final answer? Yeah, this is BS. This story, 
I did make it up. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it. I knew it because these stories, they never go, oh, look at this magical creature. Let's butcher it and eat it. It's always like... It's always like a magical creature, so it'll do something. I had I was trying to, I was, what goes on in your brain? I was trying to keep it in the realms of believability. When you said it was three foot long. How <laughs> genuinely how big you think a platypus is. I didn't is. check. I didn't check. It could like sit upright in a car seat if it was that big. Like you can hold on in your <laughs> no, hand. It's it's a it's bigger than you think, I bet. It's not three foot long, it's though. An, uh, it's enough to feed eight people. <laughs> As it may be like an amuse-bouche. <laughs> You're right, though. Port Ferry does exist. I've heard of that as a place, yeah. The thing is, I spoke to my dad and he was watching a documentary on platypuses. And he said, these are fascinating creatures. And I thought, oh, I'll stick that in somehow. And I just found out where they lived. And found out, <laughs> <laughs> found out where they lived. Did you write to them? <laughs> Ask their permission to use them in a fact. Oh, we don't have to pay them royalties, do we? <laughs> because if we can afford it. <laughs> okay, well, that was a lovely fact about a ludicrous Christmas dinner. <laughs> I'm surprised you weren't fooled. Was anyone fooled by that? Well, I've, I've, as soon as you said a platypus is three feet long, I think that's what a lot of people <laughs> might have decided otherwise. But anyway, um, from one... A ridiculous Christmas dinner to another. Ooh. I, I mentioned time and time again on this uh, podcast that I, I am vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to tell you about a very famous vegetarian Ooh, Christmas there's, there's dinner. There's the sound of everyone <laughs> turning off. But <laughs> to, to bring everyone back, this I think kind of technically falls under the bracket of that yes or yes staple. Eccentrics. The, the great Victorian eccentric. Ooh, here we go. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you about a man called uh, William Lawson which uh, also happens to be our old art teacher from BS. school. <laughs> but uh, no, he was born in Brayton in Cumbria in 1836, about 20 miles north of Keswick, mm-hmm. an area we know well. Um, he was homeschooled on the family farm. And uh, in his later memoirs, he wrote of his uh, time at school, I learned as little as was possible. So someone you can relate to there as well, Paul. <laughs> There we go. Um, so he kind of finished his schooling, quote unquote, and thought, you know, I don't really know what to do with myself. Mm-hmm. So I'll just work on the family farm. And he became a gamekeeper. But then in 1861, he had a chance meeting in the local pub with a vegetarian man. And he gets <laughs> chatting to him. This isn't just a, a, a fan fiction novel you've written. <laughs> gets chatting to him, talking about the health benefits of it. So he, he says... I thought the change of diet might benefit my defective hearing. Mm-hmm. He doesn't explain why why his hearing was bad, and he doesn't explain how maybe a change this, of this vegetarian flim flam man has yes. convinced him. Um, but he he did that anyway. He quit eating meat, was a vegetarian for the rest of his life, and absolutely swore by it. Mm. So he goes, I can't be a, a gamekeeper. I can't be involved in like fox hunting and things anymore. Mm-hmm. I need to find a new vocation in life. So what he does, he quits his job on the farm, and in uh, late in 1861, he gets a, a pony from the farm, and he wanders around England on this pony for around about 30 days down to London, stopping off at various farms on the way down. And it gets, it stops off and starts making notes about, you know, what the farm workers get paid and um, the different sort of processes that go on on farms mm-hmm. and things, uh, and makes notes about how to kind of make the perfect farm. Gets all the way down to uh, a place called Kelvedon in Essex, which is a really experimental farm. And he mm-hmm. sees all these things that this person's doing, and he goes, right, 
Does have like a biology lab in the back? <laughs> like a rocket ship? <laughs> this, is, this is the job for me. I'm going to become an experimental farmer. So he turns the donkey around, goes all, 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 <laughs> all the way back up the M1 um, and goes back up and his father uh, grants him a small portion of the farm and says, do whatever you want over there. 1862 gives him the whole farm. Don't know if he maybe retires. Something happens, but... Lost his mind. 1862, um, Mr. William Lawson is now in charge of Blennerhasset Farm near Britain. So he turns this into an early kind of cooperative enterprise. So all the mm-hmm. farm workers get a, an equal share of the profits at the end of the year. So this is his sort of big Isn't this plan. just your manifesto you've been writing for? <laughs> <laughs> but this, as an experimental farm, there's no livestock. He wants it to be purely vegetarian. This is all just homegrown crops. Uh, he has two steam machines called Cain and Abel, uh, which broke down rather a lot and, and ate into a lot of his profits. So I'm not sure that many of his workers were particularly happy with it. Their profits were slightly lower because they were constantly repairing Cain and Abel. Mm-hmm. He also took the unusual des- decision one winter in 1868 to change the turnip house <laughs> into a, effectively a Turkish bath <laughs> for his workmen. <laughs> What? <laughs> with a with a um hose and a shower and a heated wooden plunge tub <laughs> to relax in. Yeah. And uh so he he had a, a Turkish bath effectively in the mm-hmm. middle of this thing. And he also used to occasionally gather all of his staff together in one of the granaries and entertain them himself. Um, and one of these days, he uh, gathered everybody together and read out loud the entire script of Macbeth. Um, I'm not sure Macbeth is exactly conducive to a single person performance, but he, he managed it. <laughs> I'd be interested just to see it. <laughs> yes. But all of that kind of pales into in- insignificance compared to what he did on Christmas Day. Oh, here we go. 1866 when he organised an entirely vegetarian banquet, mm-hmm. uh, ticketed affair, mm-hmm. um, invited a lot of people to come, lots of press turned up who were sort of intrigued by what he was doing. It cost four pence to get in. Jeez. Um, and you had to be there at 10 o'clock in the morning. It, when you arrived, there was an enormous cross, um, like a crucifix, mm. with a huge cabbage on top of it. And that was to kind of <laughs> say... <laughs> Isn't that sacrilegious? Oh, I think it's more a sort of totem to vegetarianism, perhaps. I don't know. Um, and that was kind of like welcome to the vegetarian Christmas day. And he put on quite a sort of day of entertainment. He'd hired a gymnast. I'm going to absolutely tear this to pieces once you're finished. <laughs> Called James Burns. And the day started off with him giving a lecture entitled How to Read a Man Like a Book, mm-hmm. which uh, actually was, apart from a sort of display of his sort of tumbling abilities, was a lecture on the science of phrenology, which is about sort of reading the bumps on someone's head, obviously. And then at midday, uh, lunch was served. I should say that on the tickets it said that you could you were uh, permitted to bring your own uh, spoons. Oh well, there you go. So I think people brought their own cutlery. Uh, so at midday they all sit down to a meal, but unfortunately he wasn't best sort of caterer in the world. He'd prepared a lot of food, but he'd cooked it all the day before. So <laughs> who doesn't love rotten veg the yeah, next day? So everyone sat down to a, a meal of raw turnip, boiled cabbages, oatmeal gruel, raw carrot and turnip salad. <laughs> it's just your shopping list. <laughs> Boiled horse beans. 
I'm not quite sure what they are. Um, and boiled potatoes. And the boiled potatoes were the only thing that, that was served hot. So everything else was cold. And also, he was not only vegetarian, but he was effectively vegan. So there was no eggs in anything. Mm-hmm. And he also, to kind of champion his own produce, said, I'm not having anything that comes from Tastes abroad. of anything. <laughs> uh, so there was no salt or pepper in anything or on any of the tables. There was, of course, no sugar, uh, no vinegar, no condiments at all. So no mustard or anything. And instead of gravy, because obviously I think gravy, you know, you kind of need some sort of meat base for yeah, it good, usually. A good stock. Um, instead of that, there was just a gelatinous paste made of boiled linseed <laughs> that had been poured over everything. So that was the meal, which everybody, by the sounds of it, didn't enjoy. But lucky for them, the meal was over, and at two o'clock there was another lecture by James Burns, this, this one on uh, gymnastics and his movements. <laughs> and then at 5pm there was another round of the meal... God, <laughs> for everyone to sit down to, and then at seven p.m. there was another lecture finally on uh, the benefits of nutrition. After which everyone was given a biscuit and an apple, uh, and the day was over. So uh, yeah, uh, that's... there's a lot to digest here. <laughs> the, the First bl- of all, yeah, I think this is just your subconscious coming out here because we've got vegan collective, <laughs> where you get to read Shakespeare by yourself to a crowd. Which is, just makes me think, is this Paul's fantasy world that he's trying to... He would love it to be if people could listen to his Shakespeare renditions all day and eat vegan. Mm-hmm. Why the gymnast? Why did he bring him in? I don't know. Why phrenology? What, this has no connection to Christmas. I don't know. There was just sort of other entertainments. I think I also found a hole in your web of lies here. Mm-hmm. You said they got a biscuit at the end. Mm-hmm. But of course, you would need eggs and milk. To make biscuits not, and sugar. Not necessarily. It could just be sort of like an oat, plain oatmeal biscuit. See, I don't know if, enough about cooking to know if <laughs> you actually put eggs in an oatmeal. Surely you put eggs in an oatmeal biscuit as well. I don't think you need to have eggs. But something tells me this is... Oh, I'm, I'm in two minds on this one. Maybe it was sort of mixed with like fruit juice or something. That sounds disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like the worst... Thing is, it's so horrible. It has to be... I think it has to be true. Because it's like... It's, it's You've like, changed the tune already, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like the worst day ever. Yeah, it, it was sort of so badly received that Mickey was taken out of it in Punch, the satirical magazine of the, of the 1900s. I, I'd rather be at that platypus party than <laughs> this one. And I think it might be true because there's little facts in there, like they brought their own spoons. And the, or they were also encouraged to bring musical instruments if, if they were musicians. So that he had three granaries... One of them was the dining area, one of them was the lecture area, and the other one was just sort of like an entertainment area. So anyone who didn't want to sit through a phrenology lecture on Christmas morning could go into the other one and have a drink and play music and dance and things. So I, I think so is that where everybody I went? I think that's probably where it's most like, of the no people went. No one was at the turnip feast. <laughs> no one was eating the turnip salad and watching a phrenology lecture. On that basis then, I think I'm going to say this is true. Okay. That's my final answer. Okay. You think that there was a turnip feast on Christmas Day, 1866? With a sacrilegious cabbage on the top of a cross. All of that is true. Ah, yeah, I thought it was. I true. Think there was just too many details. <laughs> I was like, I thought maybe the cabbage on top of the cross might have it. <laughs> I nearly, because I thought that would be like, that's, that's, you can't do that. What if the local vicar found out? There's uh, all sorts of odd stories about this bloke. One of his, um, one of the Cain and Abel, it's Breaksfield and it's, <laughs> 
smashed <laughs> into the side of a local bridge, which apparently is now still still sort of shows the signs of Jeez. of um of the the stuff. And in eighteen seventy one. Uh, he installed a gas house on the farm um, and tried to repair a hole in it by holding a candle and um, blew up that year's harvest uh, and sold sold the farm later that year. <laughs> and then went to a debtor's prison. Um, but yeah, that's the, that's the story well, of William go. Wilson's vegetable farm. Well, that's Christmas Day sorted for us. I'll bring the platypus, you bring the cold turnips. I'll bring the, the linseed jelly to pour over everything. <laughs> Can't wait. Hey, I think this is it five two now. The score, God, someone's keeping track somewhere. Listeners will be on the edge of their seats. Oh my God, can can Tony come back and win, <laughs> or will Paul win again? Another, you, I think you've won every Christmas special. Yeah, I think oh, I have. Really? Yeah, this year, twenty twenty year, of, it's going to change. Was it last year that it was a clean sweep? I think so, like six nil. Right. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to finish on a high though. With, oh, here um, we go. Bit of a Christmas adventure. It's a it's a very tenuous link, basically. Right. To Christmas. It's hard to find Christmas facts sometimes, you know. You've got to get the links. <laughs> the thought process behind this, I started off with, you know, Good King Wenceslaus, the oh, Christmas yes. Carol. Mm-hmm. For years, as kids, you always thought it was Good King Wenceslas last looked out. Yes. But it was Good King Wenceslaus looked out yes. on the Feast of Stephen. Do you know much about him or where the carol comes from? Um, He was Bohemian, wasn't he? He was, which is modern day Czech Republic. Yeah. And the kind of the carol goes, he was... Made a saint. He was supposed to be a very kind man. He went out on Boxing Day, Feast of Stephen, Stephen's Day, yeah. kind of out in the cold to give alms to the poor. I couldn't find much to. Th- oh well, that's not very funny. That's like that's just that's just a nice man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't get a fact around that. <laughs> so I've I've kind of gone on to his dynasty later on down the years. All right, but okay. Before we do that, do you know how Wenceslaus died? Oh God, I don't know. He wasn't it... defenestrated, was he? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was um, is assassinated by his brother who hired three assassins to stab him and then his brother ran a lance through him like a like a knight's lance what is this is, happened to the guy out the carol yeah like his brother <laughs> he was assassinated by his brother like 15 years after the events of the carol happy christmas everyone <laughs> merry christmas is that the last verse is that like <laughs> yeah. the one that no one sings like his, verse number seven his, his brother added it in after he killed him <laughs> Wow. Why? What? Why, why did his brother not like him? Um, well, there's all sorts of power struggles going on in Bohemia. Because at the time it was, well, was it part of, I think it was part of the Holy Roman Empire then. Oh, you had so, to get them in so somewhere. Right now, I'm off. <laughs> and there was, you had the emperor. I don't know, I think it was a power struggle to kind of a jockeying for power. Oh, right. Because I think at the, that time, Bohemia was one of the most powerful states mm. in the Holy Roman Empire. So did his brother succeed him? Uh, yes, because there was no one else. Right. And obviously wow. people find, oh, well, yeah, he's fine. He's, he's dead. You may as well take it. Good grief. There's a whole history of the Wenceslauses fighting their brothers through history. Wenceslaus IV was kidnapped by his brother twice and asked to um, abdicate the throne because he was so useless. But he refused, and then civil wars and all sorts kicked off. Sorry, I'm getting quite. Yeah, I'm on Holy Roman Empire again so, now. Here so we go. Forget Christmas. <laughs> Let's talk about the family struggles of the Wenceslaus dynasty. <laughs> but we're moving a few hundred years after Wenceslaus the first, right, to Wenceslaus the third, right. More specifically, his son. So we're in 1305. Mm-hmm. Um, the story starts kind of July because Wenceslaus the third's son. He was kind of 
useless. He was a bit of a playboy. Mm-hmm. You'd always find him in taverns or he would, he would fight local peasants quite a lot. Just, just like, for something to do? Something to do. Because okay. he's a typical, like, stereotype, bored nobleman. Who right. Nothing else to do with his time. Okay. And his name was Frantisek, which okay. is the Czech name for Francis. Right. Frantisek means Frenchman in Czech. Oh, right. Okay. Because his mother was a French princess. Right. And he wanted there was a way to kind of seal the alliance between Bohemia and France by this. Oh, my son is called Frenchman. Look at how close our bonds are. Okay. So Frenchman, or Francis, right. was the useless son of King Wenceslas III. Right. She said, right, it's July now. I'm sending you off to the Holy Land to a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You'll get there by Christmas. You'll atone for your sins and you're going to come back and you're going to sort your life out because you're going to be kind of heir to the throne one day. Okay. So he said, all right, fair enough. I'll, I'll go and do it. Right. But he says, I'm only going to go with my favourite peasant, uh, Mikulas. Right. Who he'd met on one of his many tavern trips. Okay. Uh, funny thing about Mikulas, he, would, um, he was kind of like a paid stooge more than a friend by the sounds of it because Francis, he would dress him up in different clothes <laughs> and like go out into Prague with him. And he dressed him up as the town bailiff once. Mm-hmm. And he said, go and arrest him. And tell him he's been arrested because he's ugly. And he needs to go in the stocks. Or arrest him because he's got the wrong shoes on. Like, he would just play these stupid pranks by dressing up this peasant. <laughs> this is like Mr. Burns' prank monkey It thing. is. It's kind, of, it's kind of like what rich people could just get away with wow. in like, 14th century Bohemia. <laughs> so he said, I, I, I want to enjoy myself, so I need Mikulas to come with us. Okay. Um, so he sent a couple of, kind of castle guards and he's got his friend Mikulas. Okay. So they set off, quickest way to the Holy Land by ship. So they head down to Croatia, mm-hmm. hop on a boat to Italy with a plan to then get a, a boat to the Holy Land from there because okay. there weren't any direct ships. Right. Traveling by ship was very inconsistent back then. You had to wait until like a trader was going somewhere. There was okay. obviously no like regular flights. <laughs> <laughs> There's no regular flights. So he's at the, the, air, so the airport in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> but it's from here... He decides, you know, I think we should go to Constantinople first right. and kind of go to the holy sites there mm-hmm. and then go on the rest of the way by foot because that would be more of an adventure, wouldn't it? Okay. Walk from Istanbul to the Holy Land. Yes. Okay. Sensible plan. But um, none of them could speak Italian. Uh, That's a problem. They only spoke Czech and obviously Francis could speak French from his mother. Um, so they ended up on the wrong boat. <laughs> they ended up in Barcelona results so, so they were were many weeks off course by this point right they obviously don't know where they are they just start drinking because they thought that's the best thing to do what happens yeah they realize oh we're in barcelona what do we do well we've got a, there's no ships back east she said ah, right i speak french we'll go north we can arrange passage somewhere there right they make it up to montpellier where they're robbed and they, they've lost all their money and valuables but he's back in France. He knows what he's doing now, does Francis. Okay. But by this point, it's coming up to like December. So the snows are coming in. They can't travel now. What would you do if you had no money, couldn't travel, no job? What would you, what would, what would you do? For, what's your first thought to rescue the situation? I mean, you couldn't, there wasn't a game show you could go on. <laughs> Fortunately not. <laughs> uh, did he try and rob someone else? He didn't. You better plan than that. Okay. He said... Why don't we join the monastery? We stay there for the next three months until spring. 
and then rob the place blind and then flee. Oh, so it, it not <laughs> not just rob the robber, rob, rob the, the monastery. monastery. Okay, <laughs> he's really working to atone his sins here. And I think at the time it wasn't uncommon for nobles to send their kind of wastrel sons to a monastery for a short period of time. It would mm-hmm. be like, right, go to the monastery for six months. They'll literally whip you into shape <laughs> and you can come back. Mm-hmm. So when Francis turned up, the monks weren't completely surprised. He kind of schmoozed them with his connections to his mother, who was French princess. Right. He said, oh, well, you know, I've been sent here. Just a few months will be all right. Right, okay. So the monks were like, oh, fine, come on in. You and your entourage will... Um, We'll put you up for the for the mm-hmm. winter. So free food, free room, free boards, free everything. So that, this part of the plan is quite sensible. <laughs> you think so? It worked quite well because the, he hiding in plain sight sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, so it comes to the spring. Say, like, right, I need the money now. I don't have anything. One dark night, one spring night, mm-hmm. they on the way out, they rob the poor box on the way out. They grab as much jewellery and kind of um, goblets and trinkets that they can find. Mm-hmm. But this is where they, get, they don't do so well here because they've obviously used their real names when they signed up for the monastery mm-hmm. and they try to sell the stolen goods in Montpellier itself. So it was immediately the first trader they went to was like, aren't these from the monastery? <laughs> they were like, uh, no. <laughs> really thought this plan through. So the Montpellier bailiff sticks them in the town jail until they go back to the monks. Mm-hmm. Monks come in and say, what the hell do you think you're doing? Right, you're going straight to King Philip IV of France. Your uncle, he's going to sort you out. This is escalating <laughs> So It's like poor Francis. He just wanted to go to Jerusalem for Christmas. That's it. <laughs> so he's taken to Paris. His uncle gives him a right chewing out. Mm-hmm. He says, stealing from monasteries is a capital offence. But obviously I can't kill you because you're my nephew. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have to kill your two guards, though, because they were complicit. So right. these two poor unnamed guards go off and get hanged. Wow. He said, I'm going to have to kill your peasant friend. Um, oh, the, the comedy prankster. The comedy prankster. Right. But Francis says he's no peasant. He's the illegitimate son of my father and therefore my half-brother. You can't kill him. So he spares his life. Was that a lie? That was a lie. Okay. <laughs> he's not learning many he's lessons not. here. The story's nearly at its end. <laughs> because Philip IV of France is right. The only way to atone for your numerous sins is to walk back to Prague in these penitent's robes barefoot. Right. And the only food you'll get is from begging for alms along the way. Right. Which was actually quite a common sort of pilgrimage okay. back in the day, was to go barefoot. But the second he makes it to the border of the Holy Roman Empire, sends word to the local lord of Luxembourg, gets a carriage back to Prague, <laughs> and he's chilling at home by next summer. Right. Okay. That, is that the end of the <laughs> that story? That is the end of the story. Right. So that, that was the, the Christmas part, the Christmas link, was the fact that he was supposed to be in Jerusalem okay. for Christmas. That was a roller coaster. Exactly. So this is a sort of great-grandson or something of King Wenceslas. Yes. Right. Supposed to go to the Holy Land, gets on the wrong ship, ends up in Spain, walks from Spain to France, Mm. robs a monastery, (laughs) gets sent to the king, walks from presumably Paris Mm. to Luxembourg, Mm -hmm. and gets a carriage from Luxembourg back to Prague. Yes. Right. And he's learned nothing from this experience. Okay, that's quite the grand tour. He he died about 10 years after that as well. um, Suspected cirrhosis of the liver. So he he drank himself into a grave. (laughs) And he never became king of Bohemia. What a shame. We don't know what happened to his peasant friend. Probably one of the reasons why Bohemia flourished so much is that he never, (laughs) never took to the throne. Okay. It, there's nothing in there that's making me... Apart from the fact that it's ludicrous, there's mm. nothing in me that makes me think that that's so ludicrous as to be untrue. 
Mm. It all sort of does fall into place. It's just madcap, the mm. entire thing. It's odd that he sort of saves his beggar friend. <laughs> but then he thought that was Francis's half-brother. Right. He says, I can't execute a noble. Right, right. Someone who's related okay. to the king of Bohemia. He couldn't have said that for the guards, though, couldn't he? Couldn't no, he? But they were obviously guards. Oh, uh, right, know? okay. And then Luxembourg. So he, he still walks barefoot from Paris to Luxembourg. That's not a small it's not. thing to do. Mm. Um, yeah, okay. I Yeah, I, as mad as this all sounds, I think this might be true. So you think the Christmas adventures of <laughs> Francis of Bohemia, descendant of King Wenceslas, is a true story? Yeah, I kind of do. Yeah, I think that's true. This story is completely made up. <laughs> No. But the thing is, these sort of madcap adventures did happen to people <laughs> yeah. in the medieval period. But I couldn't, I couldn't find one around Christmas. So I thought, oh, I'm going to have to fudge this and come up with a, with a completely made up adventure. So does that character even exist? No. <laughs> Wenceslas so, III exists. So the whole thing, like even that person, Frankish, all of that no, stuff, no, that's, that's all made up. It's all made up. His, oh. his, his peasant friend, Mikulas. All of that was made up. All of it. They never existed. Never existed. Oh, you absolutely had me there. <laughs> That's insane. Everything was true up to Wenceslas III. Thank you. I'm, I'm so invested in it now. Finding out that that isn't true. It's just, it's like pulled the rug out from under it. <laughs> oh. The thing is, for that one, I used like my passion for the Holy Roman Empire to kind of tell the first See, half, first half of the story. I should have seen through that. As soon as you mentioned the Romans, I'm like, yeah, he's just wanted to talk about this, so he's made it up. <laughs> oh, I was absolutely in on that. Ah, that's a good tale. Ah, thank you very much, Paul. I thought I'd finish on a high this Christmas. <sighs> I was adventure. absolutely there with that. I thought that was completely <laughs> true. <laughs> right, I'm like, I, I'm genuinely exhausted after that point. That was, that, I don't think that was worth winning the point. <laughs> right, well. Uh, let's just wrap this up then. <laughs> <laughs> let's finish big. Okay, that was a good tale. And it's evened the scores out, so it's a decider. I feel slightly redeemed after that platypus fact now. God, that seems an age ago now. <laughs> Three foot platypus, yeah. It's funny, <laughs> that, funny that that one didn't turn out to be true. <laughs> So what's your final fact, Paul? Okay, um, well, I, I thought, you know, quite often end up talking about literature and things that I like. Mm -hmm. I've done a couple of Dickens facts over the last couple of Christmases. Mm -hmm. And I thought I'll try and work Shakespeare in. Oh, here um, we go. But uh, I did a little bit of research and Shakespeare only mentions Christmas three times in all of his stuff. Really? Yeah, twice in the same play, oh. twice in Love's Labour's Lost and once in The Taming of the True. Not a big one on Christmas. He did write Twelfth Night. Um, which is sort of a pretty fairly bleak play, to be honest. <laughs> but it's a sort of festive one. See, I know nothing about Twelfth Night other than the name. Twelfth Night, yeah, cross-dressing. Oh, so your favourite one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So how I celebrate every Twelfth Night. Um, so yeah, it's a Shakespeare kind of turned out to be a bit of a dud in terms of Christmas. So I started to look elsewhere around the uh, Elizabethan dramatists, mm -hmm. which I know is a strength of yours, <laughs> <laughs> landed on Ben Johnson. Is he one of the ones who people think or claim wrote some of Shakespeare's oh, stuff? Yeah, he was a contemporary of Shakespeare. You see, yeah. you're giving me all this crap and not known, <laughs> but I know. He was a contemporary of Shakespeare. He wrote um, The Alchemist, Every Man is Humor, Volpone wrote. I don't know. Bartholomew Fair? No. Okay. I, 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 um, I see the Avengers. <laughs> 
Uh, he's slightly younger than Shakespeare, even though they're contemporaries. Jo- uh, Johnson was born in 1572, but they um, knew each other almost certainly. Shakespeare actually acted in a couple of Johnson's mm. plays uh, through his kind of theatre troupe. There's a kind of old thing that they were rivals and that they, you know, would try to sabotage each other's plays and all this sort of stuff. Probably not true because after <coughs> Shakespeare died in 1616, when the, his first folio of plays was published in 1623, Johnson wrote a uh, the introduction he wrote like a sort of little sonnet i think in the introduction sort of saying shakespeare stole all my work <laughs> was... don't don't read this <laughs> my, mine are much better <laughs> put this back on the shelf uh yeah so he wrote as a tribute to him so I th- although there probably was a bit of rivalry they had a bit of respect for each other hmm. but all of that's true the question is whether johnson wrote a play called the mask of christmas hmm. or christmas his mask Okay. has two titles. Uh, so this is in 1616, actually. It's in the year that Shakespeare died. It was presented in the court of James I. So I think Johnson was probably commissioned to write this. Um, and it's very silly, like all masks. So it's not a sort of normal play. Um, it only lasts about an hour. And I think it was kind of put on kind of in the king's dining chamber. So it's like mm. all sort of court is in there having their meal and the play begins kind of oh, around a bit this. like those kind of dinner theatres yeah like kind of audience participation kind mm. of things oh I can't be dealing with them chills me to the bone <laughs> the idea of audience participation you know what if I if I pay to go and see something I don't want to be involved <laughs> You know, if you're relying on me to be funny, then you're not being funny. 100% agree with you. Yeah. Like, I just want to sit. You do that over there. I'm paying you to be funny. I've got enough stress in my life. Yeah. I don't, you know, no, you're not going to ask me where I've come from. Obviously not James the First though. He loves this. Oh, he stuff. loves this. Yeah. So they're all kind of sat there. The king's there. They're all having like kind of yammering on and eating their geese. <laughs> uh, when bang, 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 knock on the door, the play begins in marches uh, Father Christmas. Mm-hmm. Or, in his Tudor guise, mm. Captain... <laughs> oh, God. Captain Gregory Christmas. <laughs> who's... This is another fan fiction you're writing about something. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a, a Hallmark Channel a movie I'm working on. <laughs> so Captain Gregory Christmas comes w- walking in, mm-hmm. dressed as sort of old Father Yule kind of thing, and starts having a sort of bit of a jip around, going, oh, look at the king over there, yada, yada, yada. You know, doing a bit of a sort of Jerry Seinfeld thing. Uh, and he goes... <laughs> what is the deal with James I? <laughs> is he here? <laughs> Have we afforded him? Uh, so he starts doing a bit of the old bit of the old spiel, like, oh, I didn't think you were going to let me in. You'd lock the door and all this sort of thing. I've come hot foot from Pudding Lane. <laughs> this actually sounds quite good. <laughs> I'm improving, I'm improving. <laughs> so he kind of comes and does this and he gives a bit of a spiel and says, Wassail, wassail of the words that affect, I'm here to bring you Christmas with my 10 children. Okay. And here they all are. Are they, are, is he married to Grilla, the, the troll? He's married to uh, the Greek goddess Venus. Oh, he's done all right for himself, didn't he? I don't know what Johnson was hoping when he wrote this, but <laughs> yeah, so she comes in a little bit later on. So open the doors. <laughs> well, I feel like I've been transported there. I mean, honestly, give me the Tony Award already. Uh, so the doors of the hall open and in flies, quote unquote, a cherub. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was actually Cupid, Venus's son. God, it's all going on this Dressed really. as a London apprentice, of course, wearing a flat cap. Uh, so it's not sort of there with his bow and arrow shooting things. He's He's got a oh, job He's to got do. a carpentry trade now. <laughs> and he's pulling a string and attached to the string, linking the string together, 
are Father Christmases or Captain Gregory Christmases, <laughs> 10 children. Now, there's quite a lot of information here, so I won't go through it all, <clears throat> but I can give you all of their names. Oh, God. Santa's, Santa, Captain Christmases <laughs> uh, family are called Misrule, Carol, as in Vorderman, <laughs> <laughs> Minced Pie, Gamble, Post and Pear. Twins, I'm guessing. Uh, as all a double barrel name. Oh. Triple barreled, in fact. New Year's Gift, another one. Mumming. <laughs> Wassail, like a Christmas punch. Offering. And youngest and smallest of all, baby cake. <laughs> you see, I I went from believing you to not believing you to then believing you again after baby cake. <laughs> so the, the now these are all being led in on a string. And throughout the sort of whole affair... They all are sort of singing and dancing and have bring their sort of bit to the party. But to tell them part, you know, they're not all just dressed like Santa. They're not all dressed not. They're like Captain Gregory. <laughs> they all have individual costumes that have something to do with what they are. So would you like to name one of Santa's children? I'll tell you what they were wearing. Ooh, let's go for baby cake. Baby cake uh, was dressed as a child, obviously. and <laughs> That's not as exciting as I thought. Was wearing a bib and carrying a cake. <laughs> So it's literally a baby with a cake. Uh, pretty much. Yeah. Oh. Do you want to name another one? Oh, let's go for like, that, that triple barrel today. New Year's gift. Not, not something. Or post and pay. That's the one. Um, wore, wore a hat with uh, two aces tucked under the band. This is... New Year's gift was wearing a blue coat with an enormous ruff. Made of gingerbread. <laughs> right. This is impractical now. <laughs> how, how is King James supposed to keep track of all these characters? Well, the, the, there's more to the play. I mean, there's a good old 55 minutes left of this thing oh, geez, for them that, to, that, that, to go kind of mumming around. Get me money back, yeah. Like... Entertaining everyone. So, but they do have a sort of big opening number where they're all, you know, strike up the band. So it's like, so it's like guys and dolls. Pretty much. These kids come tramping onto the stage. But um, I think that I, I mean, Ben Johnson may have struggled for a rhyme for the word London. Which is quite a tricky word to rhyme Ooh. with, let's, let's be honest. Because one of the lyrics to the, the sort of big opening number. <laughs> Give me leave to ask, for I bring you a mask. From little, little, little London, <laughs> which say the king likes, I have passed the pikes. If not, old Christmas is undone. <laughs> That's all right. I yeah. mean, it's like... Uh, pass the pikes is kind of like a run the gauntlet. Mm. If you pass the pikes, like a pike, like a spear. Mm. Not I thought it would be something like that. They weren't, <laughs> yes. they weren't passing the dish of, dish of pikes. So I, I thought it would be like pikes, Tower of London pikes or something. Yeah. So you've kind of got away with it. They, they've arrived with a mask from little, little, little London. And if the king doesn't like it, uh, they won't have ran the gauntlet very yeah, well. I've got, I've got, and it's over with. I've got a, a bone to pick with them there. Because London's not that little, is it? Maybe in uh, 1616, it wasn't quite as big as it is now. Well, of course not big as it is. It didn't have 8 million people in it. <laughs> Still so a... maybe he was right. <laughs> or maybe he was just trying to flesh out the line a little bit and couldn't think of anything else. Like, oh God, we've got an extra 10 minutes to fill. <laughs> maybe this play was commissioned uh, 10 days before Christmas and he didn't have time to proof it very well. Okay. So, you know, little, little, little London <clears throat> or it's undone. <laughs> what other classics has he got there? Uh, well, no, that's uh, that's kind of basically all that happens is that uh, Captain Christmas introduces his family, eventually his wife, um, Mother Venus. Venus. 
arrives uh, to sort of rein everybody in. She has a she, she she has a song and dance. They introduce the sort of everybody dance now kind of thing <laughs> for to bring the party to a close, and the mask is over and done with. Right. So the question is: Is that a true Christmas play by Shakespeare contemporary Ben Jones? I'm leaning towards no. But then again, would you have put the effort in to name 10 Christmas children? I absolutely would have done. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is, you put that little phrase in there, like past the pikes, that might just be your little linguist brain saying, oh, I can... Maybe that went up on Haggard Hawks the other day. Did it? (laughs) 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 You see, I'm not often on the social media, you see. True. Yeah, I tagged you on Twitter the other day and I thought he hasn't been on here for about two years. (laughs) (laughs) I'll log on. Actually, I can remember my password now. I'll log on when I remember it in a few years. Yeah. So am I thinking, if you put that linguistic twist in there past the pikes just to get a little, ooh, here's a fact, that's actually true. All this other bollocks about (laughs) Captain Caveman and Captain Gregory Christmas Uh, and his ten children. The thing is, I'm not sure how to interrogate it more. When does um, Johnson die? He died in 1637. Ooh, so he, this play had a long run that he could enjoy. I, I'm not sure it was sort of put on very often. I think it was <laughs> or, more... Or ever again. For sort of um, entertain the king this year. And this was the was... absolutely shocker of a show that he put together. <laughs> <laughs> was that the king's review? Like in the Times the next day? <laughs> Absolute shocker. <laughs> he did write a lot of masks. Like he did write a lot of sort of short plays alongside his sort of big classical that, ones. Because I didn't know that. Is that like a, a phrase for a type of play, a mask? A mask, yeah. M-A-S-Q-U-E. I'm really in two minds on this one. It's like, fat dude, look at your face. I, I, I'm desperately trying not to give anything away. Oh, I'm going to say this is BS. Okay. Just because I put a lot of effort into my last facts. <laughs> and I think you might have done the same for yours. You wouldn't go and see that? I, I would totally go and see it. Baby cakes? <laughs> <laughs> that is... You see, that's a... It is gingerbread it's collar. It's so ridiculous. I don't think it's practical to make a gingerbread. It would snap off. Like, gingerbread's really brittle. Like, if you made a collar out of it, like it's falling to bits. I'd really just eat mine backstage. I love gingerbread. <laughs> if you were the kid in 1604 <laughs> or whatever it was. Right. I'm going to say this is BS. Okay. Even, although I want it to be true. So you I, can I, act in it. <laughs> so I can act in it. <laughs> Let's put on a show. <laughs> We've got to put on a show to save the house. Next year's Christmas special is us performing this show. <laughs> As all of the characters. <laughs> right, I'm going to say BS though. Okay, final answer. Yep. That fact mm-hmm. is true. <laughs> he threw it away. Uh, yeah, it's oh. completely true. That incredibly daft show, including that incredibly daft rhyme, was uh, a genuine Ben Johnson play. Was there a record of what the king thought of it? No, I'm imagining he was probably pretty drunk by the time it came out. So hopefully <laughs> he, loved he it. was able to enjoy it. <laughs> the script is, I was reading a little bit of it and it's its a bit all over the place. I mean, he wasn't bringing his A-game, old Johnson, <laughs> considering some of the stuff he wrote. It's not, was, it was uh, not great. Basically written for drinking money, probably. Pretty much, yeah. Which makes me think that they probably kind of commissioned it on Christmas Eve. That's right. The king wants a show on tomorrow. How many people can we get? Ten, right? He's got ten kids. (laughs) It's going to be about Gregory Christmas and baby cakes. Oh, the reason he called him Gregory Christmas, here's a fact for you, is um, because it was around about that time that Pope Gregory changed the calendar around. Ooh, the Gregorian calendar. 
Yeah, that, mm. that's it was sort of like a satirical joke. Yeah, uh. but Captain Christmas was kind of quite an established name for Santa <laughs> in the Tudor period. Yeah, right. We're starting a campaign to bring that back next next year. Yeah. I'll dress as uh, Cupid, and you can dress as Captain Christmas. <laughs> That'll go well on a podcast. We'll just say we've done it. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, Paul, we've learned a lot today. Fortunately, unfortunately, nothing very useful. I learned that you don't know how big a platypus is. <laughs> I can't think of anything else I've learned. What would you do? If, if that was true, though, that would have been amazing. No, it wouldn't. It was, they <laughs> slaughtered an animal that was there to bring them help. <laughs> help in the fact that, anyway, we've You're got, not getting away with this. this. We've done this. It's done. It's in the past. Well, anyway, all we can say is it's a Merry Christmas to everyone and Happy New Year. And we might see you for season five in the new year. Which new year? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> <laughs>